Father in heaven, we ask now that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things out of your law. In what appears to be the wilderness, we ask that you would give us living water. May we behold Christ and that through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As Numbers chapter 21 begins, we need to know that much has happened, especially in the life of Moses, and that he has experienced great loss. If you want to take a quick look with me back at Numbers chapter 20, you'll notice that in the beginning of the chapter that his sister Miriam dies. But not only that, at the very end of the chapter, his brother Aaron also dies. And so you'll notice there in that chapter that Moses, he, he loses both of his siblings. And they were very important in his life and very important in the life of Israel. Miriam was the most widely known woman in Israel. Aaron, as you know, he served as the high priest. But I want you to notice that in between the death of his older sister and the death of his younger brother, Moses, he loses another thing. He loses the promised land. As the Israelites grumbled for water, remember the story, Moses was told by God to specifically speak for water to come forth from the rock. He was commanded by God to merely use his words. But remember, Moses, in anger, what did he do? He did what? Remember? He struck the rock with his staff. And God tells Moses, because you didn't believe me to uphold me as holy before the people, you, Moses, you're not going to go into the land. Think about that. Moses is denied entrance into the promised land. And it all started with grumbling people and his response back to them. And it was ultimately a distrust in his God. Beloved, let me tell you this. The leadership is really hard. It's very hard. And it requires much patience. Dare I say supernatural patience. It requires an abandonment of self and pride, a complete trust in God. And brothers and sisters here at Hawaii Kai Church, I know you know this and I know you are this, but I hope and pray that you would be thankful to the elders and pastors that you have here at this church. They are humble, faithful men. You have a group of men who truly desire to care for the eternal well-being of your souls. And they didn't pay me to say that. I wish they did, but they didn't pay me to say that. But I know that because of the way that they talk about you when I meet with them at conferences or other places outside of church. And so pray for them. Pray for your leaders. But notice here that Moses loses control. And as he does, he loses the very thing that he was leading the people to. It was a devastating loss. And for all these years, this was Moses' mission to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and to the place of promise. And now that's taken from him. In the short span of a few months, he loses two of the most important people in his life, and he loses the promised land. Well, how do you recover? How do you move forward from such a loss? Now, for Moses, think about this. You, would, you can just see the impulse here would have been to say this. If I'm barred from that place of promise, if I can't go there, then let the people figure it out themselves, Right? Let them find their own way there. But that's not what Moses does. We find Moses here 
continuing to endure, continuing to intercede on behalf of the people, continuing to love and continuing to lead the people. Well, why? You see, because at the end of the day, it's not the land that was his ultimate prize, but it was his God. You see, if that parcel of land was Moses' final end, then Moses, he should have turned around and he should have deserted those people. I'm not able to go there? Well, what do I have to do with you then? But he didn't. Because his greatest treasure was not the land, but it was the God who in his grace had given it to his people. What good is the promised land if God is absent? And you see, Christian, how many of us can live our lives like that? When stripped of all our earthly aspirations, all of our material possessions to continue to stay faithful and resolute to God. We have to ask ourselves, what does our worship look like when we don't get the things that we want in this life? Are we, are we grumbling? Are we complaining? And sometimes it's the opposite, isn't it? That when there is an abundance of what we want, we're also tempted to think that we don't need God. Well, beloved, that's the context of, as we come here to Numbers chapter 21. And notice how it begins. It begins with Israel facing opposition here in Numbers chapter 21. Here they were, making their way through the wilderness when they were met by Canaanite king. And what happened here in the beginning of Numbers 21 was, wasn't a friendly diplomatic get-together, but rather there's a war. And Israel, they lose this war. Look at verse 1 with me in Numbers chapter 21. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who had lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Athram, he fought against Israel and he took some of them captive. Well, there's a war and they lose the war. Well, how do the Israelites respond? Well, they respond in a very unlikely way. They turn to God. They turned to God and they asked God for victory. Notice verse 2, they made a vow to the Lord. And they said, if you give us the victory, then we in turn will, will devote the cities of this Canaanite king to destruction. And then notice in verse 3 in your Bibles, it says there that the Lord obeyed the voice of Israel. Now that's, a, that's an interesting phrase there. It's not too often that we see that. Usually we'll see Israel obeying the voice of the Lord, but instead we read here that the Lord obeyed the voice of Israel. Well, how does that work? How is it that God would obey the voice of Israel? I would call it prayer, beloved. That when we humbly come to God and submit our hearts to Him, that He answers the Spirit's groaning within us. And it's when His will becomes my will so that when I pray, my prayer is in essence His will. And what God wants in our lives is for His will to be done in our lives. Well, the question then is this. As we ask ourselves this question all the time, what is God's will in my life? Is it to recover from my recent stock losses? Is it to get a new job? Is it to buy a new house? What's God's will for my life? Well, Romans 8.28 says this, that God's purpose in your life is to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's God's will. And so when we pray, brothers and sisters, how do we pray? Do we pray God's will in our lives? Rather than, Lord, I want a new job so I can make more money. 
Do we pray, Lord, make me holy? Make me holy. Well, here in Numbers 21, notice that God answers Israel's prayer. And he gives the Canaanites over to them. And to make it even more sweeter, I want you to notice that they called the place, in verse 4, Hormah. And that's very significant. And it's significant because this place called Hormah was the very site, it was the very place in which Israel was defeated by the Canaanites. They were defeated by the Canaanites. You know, some chapters back, and you might remember the Exodus story, that Israel had 12 spies and sent them into the land of Canaan. Word came back from the 12 that they looked at the inhabitants of the land and they seemed like what? They, they themselves seemed like grasshoppers compared to these giants. And while two of them wanted to take the land, the remaining 10, they, they advised the people, no, we can't go. And in response, what did the people do? They rebelled against God. And God, in turn, he judged them. But it's after that judgment that Israel decided to go into the land without the approval of God. And so in Numbers 14, they entered Canaan only to be defeated and to die by the sword from the Amalekites and the Canaanites. Well, that place was called Hormah. And now, now, rather than attempt to enter the land by their own strength, they enter the land by prayer. And as a result... God gives them the victory. Now, if you know the history of Israel, this was a monumental event for Israel. This was probably, probably the beginning of something new for the people. A renewed faith in God, a rekindled trust in the Lord. This is great. We've learned our lesson. But as soon as the celebration was over, notice what happened. Israel falls into the same old sin. For our, the rest of our time, I want us to focus in verses 4 through 9 here. And we'll take a closer uh, look. But basically what happens here is this. Israel sins. God judges them. And Israel responds. And God shows them mercy. Notice these Israelites. Notice how they respond. They fall back into the same old sin. Look at verse 4 with me. From Mount Hor, they sent out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Well, after the victory at Hormah, we might have expected the people of Israel to be thankful and to be grateful. They grew from their mistakes. We might have expected them to now have figured out the formula. Trust God and obey and we'll be okay. We'll get the victory. You see, they should have learned this by now. But instead, notice, they go back to grumbling and complaining against God. And now here they are just having defeated a Canaanite king, having food, having water, having meat. And here's what they say. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and there's no water. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. They do have food and water. What do you mean there's no food and water? They have food and water. And beloved, you can just see here the damaging effects of sin. 
Their sin of complaining, their sin of grumbling is doing something to them. It's doing something to their thinking. It's hindering their ability to think with any kind of clarity. And this is what sin does, beloved. It distorts the mind. It impedes one's judgment. But I want you to notice that that's not the real complaint, is it? Because the truth, it really comes after. There is actually food and water. Because this is what they say next at the end of verse 5, if you noticed. We loathe this worthless food. We have no food. We have no water. We hate this food. You know, as we evaluate the sin of Israel, we ask this question. What is Israel's problem? What is Israel's heart problem? Well, we know they have a heart problem. They have a hardened heart. But if we make a deeper incision into the heart, what is the issue that we find? And uh, there's a lot, right? There's pride. There's ungratefulness. There's impatience. It's all those things. But I think what we find in the center is this. I think it's the sin of discontentment. Why do I think that? It's because the main fruit of discontentment is to possess a complaining and grumbling spirit. And this is what is revealed all throughout the book of Numbers and for the people of Israel. You see, they are not satisfied with God. They are discontent. And they are discontent with all of his provisions. And thus they take that which God had given them. Holy manna. Bread from heaven. The food of angels as some say. And they called it worthless. They despised and rejected the holy things of God. And as a result, they rejected the God who had given it to them. And you see, brothers and sisters, we can take a step back and we can see this story and, and we can be very repulsed by their behavior. And we can read about them and say, you guys are really spoiled, right? We can be taken aback as to just how boldly sinful these people are. And it takes place all throughout the book of Numbers over and over and over again. But let me say this. One of the ways that the Bible attests to its truthfulness to us is by speaking directly to us and showing us our own sins. Because if we were to put our hearts out on the table next to the one that we just opened, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart. And that's the God on his truth. You see, at the end of the day, we're really not that different than the rebellious people on the pages before us. What do, you, what do you often find yourself grumbling and complaining about? Is it your marriage? Is it your children? Is it your job? Is it your singleness? Is it your lack of something? Or is it the excess of something? What is it that you're so dissatisfied with in your life? And the truth of the matter is that when we find ourselves discontent in our lives, it means really that we're discontent with God. And for the people of Israel, they took the heavenly manna, they took the heavenly food, and they called it worthless. They despised it. And you see, for us as Christians, we do the same thing. We take the holy things of God, and we often disparage it, and we don't treat it as we should treat it. We take something like the church. The church is 
holy, and we disparage it. We complain about the church. We gripe about the church. We do it with our marriages that God deems as holy, and we do the same thing. We take the good things of God, and we treat it as worthless. Notice, secondly, here, God responds, verse 6, in judgment. Look at verse 6 with me. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel, they died. God sends fiery serpents. He sends poisonous snakes into the camp of Israel. And this was the judgment of God. Notice the, the people they've sinned. They sin by complaining and grumbling about their circumstances. And so I want you to notice what God does here. He sends them more adversity. He sends them more adversity and not for the sole purpose of inflicting pain, but he's, he sends more adversity to drive into the people of Israel this message to stop sinning. And God at times, he will do that to us. He'll make the situation more severe and he'll bring more trials and he'll increase the temperature of our lives. Why does he do that? To get us to our breaking point. To get us to stop looking down, but to look up and to get our attention. And here in Numbers, this is why God, he, he sends poisonous snakes throughout the camp. Now, I want you to notice something very interesting here. These poisonous snakes, they were not foreign to the wilderness. Now, what do I mean? Where are the Israelites? They're in the wilderness. They're in a place which is a natural habitat for these poisonous snakes. If you ever read Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says there in verse 15 that it describes the wilderness as great and terrifying with its fiery serpents or poisonous snakes and scorpions. And so this is the wilderness. This is their natural habitat for these poisonous snakes. This is the environment in which the Israelites journeyed through. Well, how come they weren't bitten by these snakes before? It's because God in his mercy preserve the people from being hurt by them. And you see, this is what Israel failed to consider and see. You see, throughout all their wilderness wanderings, not only had God provided food and water, but he had also protected them. He had held back these poisonous serpents or snakes from harming them. And so you can just ima you can imagine an Israelite going to the edge of the camp seeing these venomous snakes and being pretty afraid, being pretty scared, but soon that Israelite would have felt relief knowing that he or she was safe because God was protecting them. But as time went on, those snakes appeared to be less and less lethal. And as they saw those snakes as less and less lethal, they were less and less thankful of God's mercies. That is until now. These deadly reptiles that were prevented from entering the camp of Israel are now set free to invade it. And you see, the just judgment of God came upon Israel not only because they complained and grumbled, but because they were unthankful. They go hand in hand with one another, don't they? 
You see, beloved, there's no such thing as a grumbling yet thankful spirit. They are in opposition to each other. And so these fiery serpents, they penetrate the camp of Israel. And as a result, we're told that many died. Now, there are two ways that you can respond. You can either continue to gripe and complain or you can repent. Notice how the remaining Israelites respond. Look with me in verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The people, they repent. How do we know that? Because they come to Moses and here's what they do. Notice the progression. They they acknowledge their sin. We have sinned. And then they specifically confess their sin. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. And notice they seek the mediator. Pray to the Lord, Moses. Pray for us that he take away the serpents. And so notice what we're seeing here is is repentance, real, genuine repentance. Israel responds to the chastening of God by seeking him. Now I want you to notice something here. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. God tells Moses to do rather a very odd thing, that he is to make a serpent from bronze and set it on a pole. Why does God ask Moses to do this? For the sake of saving the people from dying. That as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent upon the pole, the people were to look upon that serpent, and as they looked upon that serpent, the venom that was in their bodies would be of no avail. Now, I want you to notice a few things here that I want you to see. Notice that the people, what did they say to Moses? What did they ask Moses to do? Look down in your Bibles. They said this, verse 7, Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents. This was their prayer. Moses, we want you to pray to the the Lord to take these snakes away. But notice that's not the solution that God gives, is it? God doesn't take the serpents away. Now, what would taking the serpents away, what would that have done? The judgment would have stopped. But as soon as it stopped, Israel, they would have been prone to go back to their sin again. They would have been prone to go back to their old ways. But God keeps the serpents there in the midst of them. And notice the serpents. They are still biting the people. It's not even that God commands the snakes to stop biting, but they keep biting. What is God doing? And why doesn't he take the serpents away? It's because he wants his people to humble themselves and turn to him in the midst of the judgment. He's causing them to look to his solution while the judgment is still taking place. It's because it's the only way that they'll live if they look to that serpent while the venom is still in their veins. 
I want you to notice also that for Israel's sin, God, he doesn't ask them to make a sacrifice. And that's very interesting. God doesn't tell them, I want you to get an animal, a lamb, a goat, a bull, put your hand on the head of that animal, slaughter it, take its blood, make atonement. God doesn't say that. All they had to do was this. Look. That's it. God doesn't tell them to get some medicinal ingredients together, make some kind of healing ointment, apply it to your bodies. All God says to them is, look, look, look up, look up. That's all they had to do while the poison was in their veins. Just look, look away from themselves and look to the symbol, look to the sign that God had provided. What more dramatic way could there be for God to communicate to his people that all Israel had to do was nothing but simply look and to emphasize to them that they have no part whatsoever in their sparing, that they have no part whatsoever in their deliverance, but that this was purely and solely and entirely by the grace of God. All you have to do is look. And if they just looked up, that complaining sinner, that discontented sinner didn't perish, didn't perish from the venom, but lived. Churches, this not the essential act of saving faith. Looking to Christ and looking away from ourselves. Looking away from our good deeds, looking away from our bad deeds, and looking to Him alone. This is faith. This is faith. Which is why Jesus in the Gospel of John, in the Gospel narratives, he's speaking to Nicodemus in the evening. And remember who Nicodemus was, right? Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee who lived his whole life on merit. He was a Pharisee who did what every good Jew was told to do. But he came to Jesus on that night because something within him was telling him that there was something more. And Jesus tells Nicodemus this. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? That whoever believes in Him, in other words, that whoever looks to Him may have eternal life. And if you ever read John, there in John, in the Gospel narrative, in John chapter 3, do you know what verse immediately follows that story? This verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, that whoever looks to him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, the question for you and I this morning is this. Where, where are you looking? Where are you looking? You see, the gospel tells us that the venom of sin is in our veins. That humanity has been bitten by the snake and it is deadly. This is humanity's greatest problem. That we are ridden with sin, separated from a holy God, under his just condemnation. Well then, how then can I live? You simply look. You look to Jesus. You look to Christ and him crucified and you will live. 
You know, as we look at this story, we can ask the question, why did God tell Moses to fashion, of all things, a bronze serpent upon that pole? You ever think about that when you, whenever you come across this story? Why didn't God tell Moses to make a bronze squirrel on the pole? I don't know. It's such a bizarre thing to look at, a bronze serpent to be saved. You know, I read all these commentaries, and they'll devote so much of, the, so much of their material about archaeological discoveries of bronze serpents or the backdrop of serpents in Egypt to give a reason as to why a snake of all things was placed on the pole. But simply put, we can reason like this. What was on the pole? A bronze snake. Well, why? It's because on the ground, there were snakes killing people. And it was the judgment of God. And so as they looked up to that bronze serpent, what did they see? They saw a symbol of the just judgment of God. And you see, when we look up to the cross, we too see a picture of God's just judgment on sin. But there's a problem. If the cross was simply a picture of the just judgment of God for sin, what should have been there on that cross is you and me. That would have been a picture of God's just judgment on sin. You and me on the cross. But rather, what do we find? We find that there's a substitute there. Jesus Christ, God's own son. There he is, bearing the just judgment of sin that you and I deserved. You see, in the final analysis of the cross, it is not only a picture of God's just judgment, but his grace and his mercy in sparing you. By providing on your behalf, on our behalf, his only son, to whom all we have to do is but look to live. And Hawaii Church, may we then keep looking to him. May we keep looking to Christ in gratitude, in thankfulness, as we live our lives in this wilderness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, if not for your heavenly provision, we would have perished in our sin. We thank you for Christ, our Savior, who was lifted up. Lifted up was he to die, and that in our place. Would our response then be one of gratitude and not grumbling? of contentment and not complaining. For you have lavished on us all that we need and more. Would our lives then be lives that look to Christ and to him alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.